Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, Commonwealth. In 1631, the second year of the Bay Colony, only 100 would immigrate from England, all of them totally desperate. The Bay, the shortened name of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, would quickly begin to produce goods. Crops had been planted early enough in 1631 to start producing for that fall. They had learned from the Pilgrims' knowledge of what would grow in the New England climate. They brought seeds from plants native to colder European climates, unlike the first wave of colonists. The Bay had established fur trading networks with local native nations. They had also begun lumber production. Local forests happened to have tall, straight trees that made magnificent masts for shipbuilding. The tall, perfect trees were a legacy of the native forest management. Natives would start brush fires. This was part of their slash-and-burn farming methods. And by happenstance, it gave larger trees more nutrient-rich soil and destroyed other competition for their growth. The settlers of the bay would comment that the forests were so plentiful of birds that they strung nets between trees to catch the birds right out of the sky, like fish in a river. These forests of plenty were known only to them in European myths. The bay would build a society that was founded in the principles of the commonwealth, in this New Israel, the Puritans would practice their beliefs that differed from the Church of England. The clergy would be appointed by their congregations, not the Church of England. And in the churches, they would not kneel or wear the surplus or use the sign of the cross or have decorative crosses inside or outside of their churches. They would not read from the Book of Common Prayer. They would worship in their way. Governor Winthrop would convene a government of justices of the peace and assistance to the governors. These assistants would be called magistrates today. The justices of the peace would vote on new laws. The magistrates would be the executive and legal authorities of the commonwealth. Winthrop invited the public to attend meetings of court, and he would extend voting rights to all freemen of the bay. Elections would be held where freemen would elect justices of the peace to represent their towns and localities. Though these are democratic systems. Winthrop rejected the ideology of democracy, that authority comes from the people. He said that all authority, even elected authority, comes from God, and that elected officials' actions must be in the service to and for God, not the general electorate. It was democratic to elect justices of the peace, but the core Puritan clerical leadership reserved the right to select the magistrates. And after initial elections were held, the first batch of justices decided to limit the voting suffrage within the Bay. The requirements to become a freeman would be tightened. One had to be an accepted member of a church within the Bay, and church membership would become more and more difficult to obtain. There was suddenly a test, a probation period, and then other customs that would limit access to the freeman status for those that immigrated later. The next year, 1633, the bay had become well-rooted. With word returning to England of improved conditions, immigration from England exploded. The politics in England had become ugly for Puritans. King Charles had appointed William Laud as the Archbishop of Canterbury, a position that was the de facto head of the Church of England. Because, of course, King Charles is the head of the Church. But the Archbishop of Canterbury ran, for all practical purposes, the Church of England. Loud was an avowed anti-Puritan. 
When I say anti, don't think of today's politics of a political opponent saying boo-boo-boo. Laud was demanding of English citizens total obedience to the church. Puritan actions of defacing crosses, refusal to use the Book of Common Prayers, was not some petty law-breaking. It was heresy, commonly punished with whippings, beatings, permanent defacings through the pillory clubs, branding, and these were just the punishments meant for deterrence. The Church of England used its spies to monitor all Puritans in England in their communications with the Bay. As religious and political tensions increased in England, King Charles started defining any offense against the Church as treason, including nonconformity of the Puritans to the new standardized Church practices. This allowed Laud to bring those who committed treason directly to the king's star chamber for the king to judge himself. In the star chamber, you had no attorney, you must answer all questions, and you would have to self-incriminate in your testimony. This might include incriminating yourself or your family or your friends. These charges of treason allowed Laud to circumvent English common law practices, that of trial in court. This ability to claim treason gave Laud the needed extrajudicial powers to protect the crown's religion. He now could simply accuse and then execute anyone without the protection of the king's favor. And if you're thinking execution by some big guy wearing a big black mask with a large axe, that was for those with social caste. Execution would be done in a few common ways, drawn and quartered that is having four horses tied to each of your limbs and you get the rest, or you could be disemboweled and fed to yourself. A gruesome end either way. These executions would of course be public entertainment spectacles for those outside of your community, and a clear warning for those who would choose any action other than submission to the Church of England. With these enormous social and physical threats, thousands of Puritans escaped England for the promise of a new commonwealth oriented around a shared community under God, a Puritan commonwealth. The immigrants included, of course, laboring classes, but unlike other English colonies, the Puritan immigrants had large numbers of middle and high caste people bringing with them supplies for their trades. Every new ship carrying goods, parts, commodities that made the Bay Colony more like England. But most importantly, the bay was quickly becoming more and more self-sufficient. The wealthy planters would bring apples and pear trees from Europe to the New World. These are such stable crops today in the U.S., I bet few Americans even realize they're not native crops to the New World. As the Commonwealth grew, it would form a society based around a theocratic ideology. I don't call this a theocracy because the clergy didn't directly rule. As described before, the government was formed with justices, magistrates, and a governor but the clergy did rule through social pressure and social disciplining. The commonwealth was based around the idea of conformity to a religious understanding of the way of life. They believed that God had a purpose for the bay, and they must, as a commonwealth, obey that covenant to God in order to receive from God the new Jerusalem on earth. The clergy would pressure anyone in the commonwealth that was not considered fixed and stable within that society. The leaders of the clergy would prefer to use admonition for the return of the wayward congregant back into the flock. They viewed this as the only loving thing to do for somebody astray. And this discipline was to shock someone's soul that they would repent and return. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and show him your fault. 
just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he still refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. The further one proceeded through the progression of admonition, the public punishments would become social scars. A drunk who simply refused by the first word to stop drinking may then be required a public admonition to wear a large D in public for a period of months. If an erroneous member of the community would still not conform, the last step of admonition was to exile them from all of the community until they repented and conformed. Just the threat of this rejection of the whole community would often quickly result in repentance and conformity, even for the most stubborn. For those who were currently exiled, even sitting at a table together with your family was out of the question. And exile would often be paired with physical punishment, commonly whipping. Fifty lashings and exile until repentance and conformity. Each step of admonition was designed to ratchet up the social pressure on someone. They could end it any time they wanted. They just had to conform to the commonwealth. But for those that continued all through the admonition and still did not repent or conform, then they would be banished. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him, in order that he may feel ashamed. If someone was banished, then all church members of all churches in the commonwealth were to not associate with them. But those banished from the bay would often head back to England, seeking vengeance upon the bay, testifying that the Massachusetts Bay Colony was not dissenters from common religious practice. They were separatists, ignoring English common law and the doctrines of the crown. The stories of the banished would be compounded by the faithful to the Church of England when they had visited the bay they agreed that the colony was clearly not following doctrines set out by the crown. Leaders in the bay got warned that they were being called heretics and separatists in England, a very dangerous accusation. The Privy Council, the king's closest and highest advisors, formed a body to review the control of all English colonies. They soon ruled that the Massachusetts Bay Company needed to return their charter to the Privy Council for review. This was the first administrative step in rescinding the Massachusetts Bay Charter rights. And you have to remember this threat that, in fact, King James, a decade earlier, had dissolved the Virginia Company's charter in 1624 and converted that colony into a royal colony, overseen by a crown-appointed government. The Bay allies in London explained that the only copy of this charter is in Boston. This would delay the inquiry, but didn't evade the threat coming from the Privy Council. At the same time, Laud was using his power as the head of the Church of England to block Puritans from leaving for Boston. He prevented 12 ships from sailing the first year. Any ship that was allowed to sail to Boston, its occupants were required to swear an oath to the king and that the king was the rightful ruler of all churches within England. And you need to remember that especially for Puritans, that this oath was an oath to God, and this was a very meaningful act for such a pious person. Breaking an oath was directly breaking one of the Ten Commandments. When this oath seemed to not make a difference of the amount of people immigrating to Massachusetts Bay, Laud changed the requirement so that immigrants now had to show two written affidavits 
from English justices of the peace. When this had no effect, he added the requirement that they have to have an affidavit from a standing minister within the Church of England, who would vouch that they were loyal to the Church of England. But all of this regulation upset the London merchants, who made a lot of money from transporting immigrants to Massachusetts Bay. The London port authorities quickly grew lax in actually checking for these requirements. The Bay leaders heard word that the Privy Council had taken Morton's winning claim against the colony as evidence of the Bay's separatist actions, and the Privy Council had authorized Fernando Gorgias as their agent to come and retake the charter from Boston by force if needed, and that the Crown would be sending an appointed governor to rule the Bay. Morton's claim stemmed from the Bay's actions the year before. Thomas Morton had an isolated plantation near the Massachusetts Bay, He had come into conflict with the other New England colonies for telling their indentured servants to break their servitude and come join him on his plantation, where they could live freely. Plymouth officials were very hostile, told Morton, because they figured how would they keep their servants if they could just flock to him. Second, Morton's style of living offended both the Pilgrims and the Puritans. In Morton's own words, he was a carnal man, regularly enjoying the company of native women. He named his plantation Marymount and erected a giant maypole in mockery of the other plantation sensibilities. The Bay viewed a maypole as a pagan idol. Third, he freely traded guns with the natives. This was seen as threatening to all English colonies' safety. Fourth, his easy relations with natives made him their preferred place for bringing furs to. This preference made Morton's plantation the preferred place for fur trading vessels to anchor at. Massachusetts Bay officials had him arrested, then sent him back to England. The English authorities immediately freed him as Morton's plantation was outside of the Bay's jurisdictional area. Morton had promptly returned a few months later. Again, the Bay colonies arrested Morton on trumped-up charges and decided instead of sending him back to England, they would deal with him themselves. And they chose a very rough treatment. The Bay sent him into the pillory for physical disfigurement. Then they seized all of his possessions and burned Marymount to the ground. Then they sent him back to England, penniless and broken. Once back in England, Morton would seek vengeance in the English courts. Morton's case was cited by the Privy Council as evidence for the need to remove the Massachusetts Bay Colony of its charter for gross violation of English common law. With English officials on their way to take control of the colony from the Bay officials, the Bay started building a floating gun battery out in Massachusetts Bay. They publicly said that this this was for the defense of possible French forces in Canada or, or maybe Dutch forces coming from New Amsterdam. But politically, everyone knew. It was built in case the English forces had come and decided to take their charter by force. Bay officials then demanded that all freemen living in the colony take oaths to the rightful governor of New England and all lawful laws hereon passed by him. Refusal to take this oath would result in immediate banishment from the colony. The Bay was preparing for war with English officials, an act that would be seen as treason in London. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.